Hello and welcome to the latest series of the Loosehead podcast with me, Jeff Neville. This season of the podcast will be focused entirely on the coaching side of the game, discussing topics like creating environments, focusing on processes, overcoming ego, various aspects of player management and dealing with the euphoria of wins and disappointment and losses. A different coach will join me every week to share their expertise and experience. And this week, I'm delighted to welcome Mike Ruddock, who's currently the development director with the Ospreys. Mike also coached Lansdowne to AIL titles and Wales to Grand Slam success, along with the Ireland under-20s. And he was the director of rugby for the Worcester Warriors too, just to mention a few roles. Mike, how's life treating you over in the Ospreys? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting time really, isn't it? You know, because obviously with the backdrop of COVID, um, I'm managing to do some stuff that I, I wouldn't have done normally. I live near the beach in Swansea, so I get down the beach every morning for a walk with a dog and uh, with my wife. And uh, we, we do a sea swim every morning, which sort of really invigorates you and gets you ready for the for the big, big day, you know, so um, big day ahead. So enjoying that. But it's obviously strange times because I've had to learn how to become a expert on Zoom calls and all the other sort of technical technical aspects of uh, meeting and uh, talking to people where normally you'd, you'd get in the car, drive and, and talk to those people and extend your network that way. So it's interesting times, but um, yeah, getting on with it as everyone else is. I want to chat to you today purely about coaching in order to learn from your experience and insights. So if it's all right with you, I guess I'll just jump right in. You crack on, Jeff. Uh, the first question I'd like to ask is quite a reflective one, and it's not how you got into coaching, but in fact, why did you coach for so long? Uh, well, there's a number of reasons why I coached for so long. One, I guess, um, I got reasonably successful early on. That attracted attention from other clubs. And, you know, don't forget, it was the amateur days when I started in rugby. So we weren't getting paid. It was a lot of time, you know, and commitment out of the house. So that attracted some interest from some other clubs. And, you know, I started to get... Uh, a little bit further up the coaching ladder with bigger and better clubs each time. I'd also got injured at work. I'd, I'd, I'd fractured my skull and I'd broken some vertebrae in my back. So I had to retire at 26. So to be honest with you, Jeff, I missed the dressing room as well, you know. So, um, you know, I just felt I'd parted company with the oval ball uh, a little bit too early and I wanted to stay involved. I, you know, I loved the sort of camaraderie of it all. I loved the interaction i love the the ups and downs of it um the challenge of it and um so a combination of both really you know miss missing missing being part of a team missing having something to strive for uh, a challenge and obviously then uh, some interest in my coaching ability particularly locally uh, at that time gave me some challenges that i i sort of wanted to, to take on and, and test myself with really so would you say it was a kind of a desire to work with people, improve yourself at the same time that led you down kind of that coaching path? Yeah, it was. But also, uh, I mentioned this to someone the other day. Um, you know, I think it's a very powerful thing. <laughs> you know, I don't know what the, the powers are. Uh, I'm not overly religious, but um, I think there's a higher power or, you know, the universe uh, is, is a very powerful thing. I've learned in my old age to reflect on that. And uh, when I got injured at work, uh, I was advised by the specialist to give up playing rugby. I'd fractured my skull. I'd smashed one of the organs of balance in my ear. 
in a year. I can't, you know, I'm totally deaf in, in one ear. I fractured uh, bones in my back. So I was in a bit of a bad way for quite a while. So I remember my dad taking me to see a specialist, uh, ENT specialist. And uh, obviously he said, look, you shouldn't play rugby. And my dad said, what are you going to do now you can't play rugby? I said, well, if I can't play for Wales... Uh, I'd been in the Wales B team, I'd been in the Welsh squad, but never good enough to be capped. I said, look, if I can't play for Wales, I'll I'll coach Wales. And uh, I put that statement out there. It must have landed somewhere in the universe. And uh, somehow that motivation to achieve that goal was also underpinning the other elements I talked about, about you know the challenge, wanting to be part of a team, and, and obviously getting interest from clubs as well. So I guess now I think about it, Jeff. They were there was definitely an underpinning desire to to try and get to the top because obviously I made that statement. When you put that statement out there that you wanted to coach Wales, like I know you 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 said it to yourself maybe first, but do you think that teams and players these days are almost afraid of putting their ambitions out there in case they fail? Yeah, I think I think so. Um, I think so. It's interesting. You know, I look back on Wales have obviously had a successful about fifteen years, three or four. Grand Slams and, and championships, but they haven't done particularly well at the World Cup. They were very unlucky one year. Sam Warburton got sent off in the semi-final when they were playing very well, but the highest finish they've ever had was third, and that was in 1987. And a very good friend of mine, Richard Moriarty, who was captain of the Wales team in uh, 1987. I played rugby with Richard in Swansea. Um, he made a statement, we're going there to win it. And uh, I think everyone sort of... Uh, you know, looked over their glasses, if you like, to at that uh, particular statement. But you know, he was very, he was a very determined guy, and it was a, still the highest ever finish at a World Cup. So I think putting it out there can be a powerful thing. Obviously, as you said, then the downside of that is if you don't make that, people, you know, perhaps have got an opportunity to score some cheap points and and get into you about uh, perhaps failing. You know, it's probably a, it's probably a, a fault of mine that I, I probably didn't aim big enough with my teams at times. Now, you know, I reflect back and think, if I'd been more confident in myself and my own ability, I could have put those sort of statements out there more often and perhaps driven my teams to even higher standards. So, um, you know, I remember, for example, uh, when I first came to Swansea in 1991, Swansea had finished uh, last but one in the first season of Welsh Leagues. Now, bear in mind, Swansea had been traditionally one of the top four clubs in Wales and suddenly they were last but won the league, almost got relegated and had lost to an unfashionable team in the Cup. I came in, uh, we had a supporters' night. I said, listen, uh, I think we'll, you know, I'm aiming to finish top four. And I remember after the gig, my wife said to me, oh my God, you put quite a bit of pressure on yourself there, trying to finish top four. You know, don't forget, you you only just finished last but one. And I said, hey, geez, you're right there. You know, so that's a fair bit of uh, living up to now. Um, as it turned out, we actually won the league. Uh, against all odds, we've gone from last but one to win the league. But I, you know, I have to say in the first couple of games, I was uh, <laughs> a little bit on edge and anxious that I'd uh, made a statement perhaps I couldn't deliver. But I think on reflection, if you dream big, think big, drive that standards to your expectation, hey, what's wrong with that? I fully agree. I think ambition isn't cockiness or it isn't arrogance. It's simply why people play the game to be the best they can be. 100%. And I think, Jeff, you know, we've all become victims of the keyboard warrior in a lot of ways. And uh, again, looking back on my own career, probably my lack of real confidence deep down in my own ability made me sort of afraid to say that too often, if you know what I mean. We're going to do this and we're going to do that and win this and win that. Because basically people, you know, you, you sort of worry a little bit about people perhaps uh, 
having cheap shots to do, you know. So, you know, if I'd have my time over again, I'd probably stick my chest out a little bit more and be a little bit more brash about my statements. Um, but, of course, when you're a young coach, you just don't know whether you're good enough to deliver. You just don't really know uh, how you're going to control those, all those variables. You don't really know if what worked for you in the previous club is going to work for you in the, in, in, in the next club. And it's only when you get some mileage on the clock and you reflect on it that you actually can say, well, actually, there are certain principles there uh, that underpin a high-performance culture and environment and the system, and there's certain sort of skills and man management-type skills that can be aligned to that, that give you the best possible chance to, to deliver that. And if you can consistently keep your eye on the ball with those, then you've got a good chance, you know? And, and of course, the other thing for me, Jeff, is I... I guess it's all settled down a bit now. Everyone knows that if you're a professional coach, and I can only speak really about my time in rugby, you, you sort of handpick your, your coaching team normally around you and you align the skills and personalities and blends to suit and you control the programme and you've got a fair idea of what the budget is and how you can recruit along the budget. So things have settled down. Whereas when I was starting out, uh, it was still amateur. Then we went through the tr- transition from amateur to professional none of us had ever been through that before so it really was new ground really there was no script for it and uh it was learn as you went along every step of the way so it was very difficult to be overly confident about actually where you were going and what you were doing it's not just players a coach has to deal with but the backroom staff as well as you said and depending on the age profile of a team it actually could be parents as well Cultivating relationships is a pretty pivotal role and without delving too deep into the past, how important is it to have a good relationship, be it working or personal, with the coaches working with you? Oh, it's massively important and, uh, you know, having reflected on that more than ever, you know, I was sort of pretty easy going really in, in that you think, well, you know, you're pretty down to earth and you can get on with most people but if you've got different philosophies, if you've got different totally different ways of doing things and approaching things. You know, it can lead to conflict and, and, and differences of opinion and then that can spill out into the into the team environment, which is the last thing you want, you know. So it's nobody's fault other than right at the beginning, either the the club management or or, or, the, or the people who put the coaching team together haven't really considered that in detail and, you know, really understood what the coach wants from his coaching team or allows him to handpick his coaching team. Or you know, there's um, you know, there's a, a sort of a difficulty really in terms of understanding uh, what makes high performance. Uh, so you know, I think again, I talk to people about cohesion. You need cohesion in your teamwork, but you also need it in your coaching group. And there's two elements of cohesion, Jeff. As you know, the first element is task cohesion, where you're absolutely focused on the task. And everyone works so hard to work through that process and achieve the task uh, successfully. Uh, but alongside that is social cohesion. And uh, where everyone's sort of values and behaviours and thoughts and philosophies are, are, are so aligned that you actually get on well together. You like to spend time in each other's company. You might go for a, a bit of food or a beer after training. You might go uh, you know, around each other's house to kick around a few ideas or stay on later after work because you so enjoy that person's company. And then you get in, once you've got that, you get into the deeper and much deeper areas of coaching, of preparation, of uh, performance. 
because you you're really comfortable throwing things out at each other, bouncing off each other, uh, and then that permeates through to the team. Everyone can see the harmony above. Uh, everyone knows that everyone's working together. No one's forced to take sides and support one coach or the other. So, mate, it's so important. And with the Ospreys this season, uh, when I came in as performance director initially, um, you know there was a, a quite a quite a bit of a negativity, a big cloud hanging over the Ospreys. So, uh, what I did was I put a plan together to become a performance director for six months in order to put a coaching team in place. They were totally aligned. Um, so that they could move forward together to create a high-performance environment and create a better atmosphere. And uh, I first brought in Toby Booth, did a lot of interviews and research on Toby, and, and he emerged as a, a fantastic candidate, and I believe he's going to do a great job. And then Toby and I set about finding his right-hand man, who became Brock James. I think we interviewed 10 people in the end after going shortlisting guys. And uh, I guess the lockdown gave us a little bit more time to be more thorough we interviewed 10 guys and the big thing we were looking for obviously were competencies and skills but also the alignment of philosophy uh, and also the third option was loyalty we didn't want a, a coach who was going to because there's times where you might disagree but you walk out of the room united um, to the players and uh, we wanted loyalty as our third element as well we made sure we put that process into into being uh, for the Ospreys so we got a really tight coaching group they're very aligned on their thinking very aligned uh, in terms of their blend and how they get on. And we feel that that's going to lead to a more cohesive environment for the Ospreys. There must be plenty of conversations still to be had, though. I mean, I know you've everything in place and you're on the road now, but I'd say it constantly needs that reflection or it con- you constantly need to be looking at it again in order to make sure it's always going in the right direction. 100%. And more and more uh, coaching has become such a reflective piece. You know, uh, Jeff, I've dipped in and out of... of sort of reflective practice. I've been autocratic at times, particularly when I've had part-time teams where I've had to, you know, just have two sessions a week. You know, I would love to have empowered players a lot more, but, you know, in that situation, you've got to really drive the bus, you know, and um, and demand certain things within your three-hour window. So, but when you're in a full-time environment, you're there every day, uh, you need to realise that to get engagement, buy-in, and that cohesion we talked about, you need to have a really good dialogue, narrative around your relationship with your leadership group. Uh, you need to to be engaged at all times, be open-minded uh, to, to give and, and receive sort of feedback around the performance areas and the behaviours and and set up a, a real strong piece on, on the culture you want to drive because... Over time, if you get those things right, you get that level of engagement and honesty and feedback right, you should start to get incremental improvements and incremental sort of changes that are going to take you forward. And Jeff, as you know, in coaching, there's always bumps in the road and there's always a few potholes along the way and obstacles to overcome. But um, if you're tight and you're all together and you're cohesive and you're open in uh, your dialogue, there's every chance you can find the solutions you need to, to go forward. Can it be difficult to initially leave your ego at the door when you're entering these conversations? Yeah, it can. And that's why you, you need to discuss that up front right in the beginning. And uh, a couple of examples, you know, um, you know, one of the first st- statements uh, Toby Booth made in the interview was uh, my only ego is for the team. And that resonated so strongly for me. And I, 
I delved into that with a number of questions in the interview for him and uh, it became obvious that, um, you know, it's not about him. It's about how he engages, how he creates an environment where there's interaction, there's uh, that engagement piece that we, we feel is very, very strong, you know, and uh, that was most impressive. I remember taking the Ireland in the 20s to the World Cup. Now, I'd been to a senior World Cup with Wales uh, back in 1995 when Jonah Loma burst on the scene and uh, destroyed all of us, uh, including the Welsh team I was part of. I was the assistant coach there uh, to Alex Evans, who was a, who was a fantastic uh, coach, an Australian guy who, who did really well in, in Cardiff. But um, So I, I'd had experience of, of a World Cup before. Uh, I knew that you spend a long time away from home, it's very intense. Uh, people can get uh, a little bit battered and bruised if they don't make the team uh, mentally. If you like, um, there can be some fallout. We can all be guilty of of, of sort of getting a bit uh, irate if you like if we don't make the team, and then and starting to feel that that sort of negativity around that. So, one of the things I explained to the boys is we need to have this sense of togetherness. We need to all pull in the same direction and we need to leave our egos really uh, at home so I asked them to write down in the room this is my ego and I'm quite happy to park it for the next month in support of the team so they, they signed that they wrote it down they signed it uh, I asked them how they felt about that they you know they seemed to be comfortable with it they wrote it down put it in an envelope name on it I handed it uh, to the team manager and at the end of the trip we handed them back and uh, you know I thought it was a a simple sort of powerful thing, really, where where the guys realise we we we've got to get in this for the team, and if we're unlucky to uh, enough not to be in the team, we still you know we still sort of for the team we we come and talk to the coach, we have that performance conversation. We might not like what we hear, but we walk out the room and it's all about the team. So I think those sort of things are have become really important. The ego piece, I know I failed on it miserably many times as a as a as a player, if I got left out, or as a coach, sometimes if I missed the cut, you know, feeling a bit sorry for myself, and my ego sort of surfaced, and uh, I learned to kick it down the road a little bit in time. Uh, so I think you're right to raise that. I think that's a really important point. Do you encourage your players, or did you encourage your players to talk to you about their issues? Yeah, but it's very difficult, of course, when you've got, uh, you know, if you're in a squad of you know, 30, 40, 50 players, you know. Um, so it, it's very difficult to to have the time, you know, the expectation now with video analysis, um, meetings, media, particularly things like the wheels team. Um, looking back on my time, you know, I was forever being wheeled out in front of the media, you know, and that takes you away from the engagement piece with the players. And, you know, you look back on that and, and obviously if I was ever to do that again, which I won't, I won't be doing it in my age, but uh, you know, I would have taken a little bit more control of the media schedule and and basically not be led there because it takes you away from the, the engagement piece. So you're right; it's so important. So I think you need to probably share that around. You know, you can have assistant coaches that can pick up groups of players and and get to know them. But certainly, I'll give you one example. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier about Uation when I came and they were last but one, and then um, we end up winning the league. Now. You know, I wasn't the best coach in the world. I was never the worst coach in the world. So I suddenly didn't come in with um, this incredible level of coaching that um, made us world beaters, you know. What I did do was exactly what you said. I, I engaged with my players. I 
I give every player a questionnaire. I had some ideas on where we were going wrong. I give every player a questionnaire on what they thought was going wrong with the team, uh, areas they felt felt we you know we need to improve in. I discussed that openly with with the team. Um, for example, then I engaged with every player. Of course, I had time. Uh, we only trained twice a week, so I could ring players at different times and I speak to them. And I had, it was the days before mobile phones. So you couldn't store the information in your phone. I'd write it all in my, my little black book, my, my, my telephone book. And I'd ask the players, right, sorry, just tell me uh, about, your, you know, your, are you married? Are you with, living with a partner? Who's your partner? Have you got children? What their names are? And, you know, if I happen to ring someone about a uh, performance conversation or a selection conversation and their wives would answer, I'd know their wives' names. I might know their kids' names. And... I just felt it was really powerful, and we had that sense of togetherness. The wives suddenly all became best friends. Uh, my wife was very active in pulling the ladies together for match days. Uh, so not only do we have that really tight bond on the field with the with the with the squad, uh, we had a really tight bond with the you know with the, with the partners and the and and the people supporting the players, and we felt like one big family and. Uh, to be honest with you, Jeff, I think that's a really powerful thing if you can get to that level. I look back and I, I probably underestimated it after that. When the game went professional, I probably focused more on the the technical stuff and left some of that engagement piece behind. And you know what? It's massively powerful now I reflect on it. Do you think it's incredibly important for coaches to make the time then to engage with their players, even if it is just a quick 30-second chat in the corridor or maybe... A quick phone call. You know, what I loved about my time in Lansdowne over the last few years was the WhatsApp uh, facility, for example. So we could do our debrief uh, either on Huddle or I could do it in the uh, in the clubhouse before we went out on training for five, ten minutes. I really shortened it up because I wanted to maximise our time on the field. But what I could do then, Jeff, was follow up then with mini videos that I could talk over to individual players. So I could might send out 10, 15 videos that week uh, to different players, and I'd send them a WhatsApp video and say, listen, really happy with these three clips, but listen, can you work on these areas uh, over the next couple of weeks? Uh, come back to me, tell me what you think. Uh, do you agree? Uh, have you got any ideas on, on some of the solutions around that? I want to talk to you about my ideas. We get into you know some deeper conversations about those elements of performance, if a player couldn't make training, could be injured, um, could be sick, you know, you can flick him a, a text, you hope you're okay, uh, give me a ring, let me know what's going on, how are you feeling? So, you know, you can quite simply say this week I'll, I'll, I'll focus on the front five. You know, in football it could be the attack and, and, and then next week I'm going to focus on a, a few engagement pieces, perhaps some text, phone calls to the defence and just say, listen, I just want 10 minutes chatting about where we're at, you know, let's keep it open, open-ended. open Tell me your thoughts. So I think, uh, and the players really like that. I think they like, they like the fact that, you know, you can be approachable. They like the fact that they can chat to you. Now, there's going to be times where you need to separate those relationship conversations to, you know, a performance or selection conversation where you say, I'll sit the player down and say, listen, um, you know, I know I was chatting to you yesterday about the family and we were chatting about your dog not being very well or you had to go take it to the vet or whatever. But let's just separate that for the moment. I need to have a selection conversation with you and it's in that context. So I think if you can get to that level, you've got a fighting chance of really um, trying to keep things 
online and as cohesive as possible, but also for you then. Because I found in the early days, um, I would think, really, I've, I've just dropped that guy, I've left him out, I've had to give him some negative feedback on his performance. Our relationship is is probably not never going to be the same. Uh, whereas if we can put them into different compartments, you know, separate the relationship and the and the performance, um, there's a chance we can still crack on with a, a reasonable relationship, even though he's not in the team. It's brilliant you brought up Lansdowne there because I actually want to start leading towards the amateur side of rugby. In Sam Warburton's book, he mentions that the only difference between professional and amateur players is that one gets paid, as in both can still make the same efforts to be the best. And essentially his point is that once you control everything that you're in charge of, you can be professional in all but maybe the pay scale. Having worked with guys in Lansdowne, like Scott DC, for example, who was just like ultra-professional in his own habits and prep, would you agree with Warburton on that point? Yeah, 100%. Look, uh, I was so lucky at Lansdowne. What a great club. Uh, I just love my experience at Lansdowne and so enjoyed my time there. You know, it's a great club, great people. I got a chance to work with some terrific rugby players, you know. Like people in Wales say to me, oh, well, but it wasn't a professional team. I said, well, <laughs> it wasn't a professional team in that the boys got paid. They certainly didn't get paid, but their mindset and attitude towards it was absolutely 100% professional. It was really spot on. It was high performance. You know, we had a gym at the club. We had a conditioner at the club. We had a nutritionist at the club. We had performance analysis at the club. You know, guys would do Pilates on a Monday night, recovery sessions. Um, it was so professional. Um, but, you know, the only thing they, they didn't get, a, you know, the chance to do perhaps was uh, as much conditioning work as a professional. Otherwise, their habits and behaviours were, were pretty spot on. Uh, having said that, they did uh, know to enjoy themselves a little bit on Saturday night if we'd had a few wins. But uh, ultimately, their mindset to go out and perform and win uh, was spot on. And, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to win three All-Island Leagues. Well, we weren't just lucky. We put the work in. All, three All-Island titles. Uh, and Lansdowne never won an All-Island League before. So three of those uh, in five or six years and the Bateman Cup, you know, the All-Island Cup and numerous Leinster and leagues and, and, and Cup. So it was a fantastic time, um, really professional mindset. So you're absolutely spot on. And it goes back to that point, Jeff, that we talked about um, thinking big. You know, what I did say when I worked in the Lansdowne is, I was a big fan of Leicester back in the day when I was coaching Leinster and um, and Swansea. You know, Le- Leicester used to dominate European rugby and Munster. Obviously, I think lost to them at one time uh, to the hand of uh, Neil Back. Uh, I hate to remind everyone on that. But, you know, Leicester was so hard to beat. Whatever it took to win, they would do that. And, you know, if they didn't win the European Cup or the Premiership, uh, you know, someone would have to beat them to, to win it. So I said, look, you know, that's the sort of team I want to I want to coach, you know, and we've all got to buy into that. And the boys did. And, you know, as you say, Lansdowne went on to win three All-Islands, the Bateman Cup. Um, and if someone wants to beat us, uh, wanted to win the AL, they had to beat us along the way. And Cocon and Clontar, for example, two of our great rivals, were fantastic teams. And, and we all got stuck into each other. It was a great experience. And I think it drove the standard a little bit. Um, and got the best out of all those teams, you know. So I really reflect on that, and the mindset the boys had was 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 pretty awesome. 
you said there that the only thing that the, the lads didn't get was probably more conditioning sessions um, in the club and stuff like that. But they did go away and control, let's say, how they slept, how they ate, how they prepared for training, even something as small as getting their gear bag ready. So they knew they had everything. There was nothing left out. I don't think that preparation, let's say, is separated from professional or amateurism. You still need that to succeed in any walk of life. Yeah, 100%. Look, and Jeff, I always see uh, whenever people ask me about high performance, I think there's, there's four pillars, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And the first one is the physical pillar, the physical effort you put in. And uh, I think Michael Jordan said the other day on his uh, his Netflix sort of uh, series that it starts with hard work and ends with champagne, you know. So if you ask any Olympian when they're on the, the podium, um, you know, or the pedestal there, you know, who's... Uh, how come you won the Olympic gold medal? They'll all say, well, it was down to the effort. It was down to the hard work. It was down to the effort I put in, you know, down to the training. And I always say to the boys, when I saw, for example, the lands down, I said, listen, guys, first, my first training session, I'm going to give you a, spe- a special supplement. It's called BHW, bloody hard work. Because if we put in the bloody hard work, we will be very competitive, you know. So it starts with that, that physical pillar. It starts with hard work and effort. Then it go into the mental pillar uh, about achieving your goal. It's always good if you've got a cause to fight for as well. Then you're into the hardware, you know, the support systems, and then you're into the culture, uh, how you have that the sort of shared values and togetherness and that that sort of mentality, if you like, of, of driving those standards. So um, it's all about those four pillars, but absolutely it, it all comes down to that that mindset of being as professional as you can be, as you said, having your kit bag ready, having your, uh, you know, cleaning up the gym after you. Um, you know, we, you know, just this season uh, gone, uh, just before I left Lansdowne, we, we dropped the first few games of the season. And li- we'd, I'd let little things slip. The boys would let little things slip. You know, for example, our, our training container, we shared with the under-20s and everybody was just piling stuff in there. You know, before and after sessions, the 20s would take a bit of kit. I'd look in there uh, for my kit to set up my training session. Half the bags were ripped, half the bags were broken. Um, or the ones I wanted were right at the back, buried under everything. That then impacted on the way I could run my session because I couldn't get access to all my kit. Or, or a lot of it was for the 20s. So uh, a simple thing like I got a couple of injured boys to help me and we cleared out the container. We threw out all the broken stuff. We put some compartments in. We separated the under-20 kit to the first-team kit. We marked it all up with indelible markers. Uh, we obviously nominated guys who would be putting our kit in and out every session. Uh, and as soon as we did that, we won the next game, which was Clontarf away, which is a really tough place to win. Because suddenly my sessions were better. I had better access to the kit. I had better hardware out there. Better mindset. We we just spent a little bit of time, like you said, to get your kit bag ready. We actually got the container ready. And I said to the boys after the game, when we won the game, I said, hey, get the shed right, we'll get our head right. You know? And uh, it's it's amazing how those little things stack up. And if you let them slip, they stack up and go in the wrong direction. Well, it wasn't really about the container, though, really, when you think about it. It was, if we let the container slip, we'll walk past that. The next thing we see, we'll say, oh, well, we've already let that container slip, so we'll just kind of skip over this one. When does that kind of circle end, I suppose? 
100%, absolutely, mate, 100%. So suddenly we were out training that week. All our kit was norm- uh, was marked up. We used our first team kit. It was all in good order. Nobody had to pick up a tackle shield with one strap broken. Nobody had to hit the tackle bag and all the all the sort of filling came out because the zip was busted. Uh, we had to chuck that away and compromise the drill, you know. Uh, it's such an important thing, really. And again, I, you know, again, I sort of got distracted into other stuff, technical stuff, video analysis, engagement piece. And if you get a piece like that, so you know, it was a simple thing to do to nominate people to go in and, and be uh, in charge of that. So we set up a rotation, like over three weeks. Like the front five would look after it one week, the back five or the middle five, sorry, uh, back row half backs next week and then uh, the three quarters the back five would like after it the following week you know it's very simple to do and their responsibility was to to keep the shed get the shed right get the head right a few years ago and i don't know if you'll remember this at all but i actually got in touch with you via mark roach and i asked could i come watch a forward session in lansdowne and all right not only did you say no problem but you brought me into the team meeting at the beginning uh, throughout the session, you asked me thoughts on the little drills you were doing, and you you took the time to stop and have a chat with me afterwards. Uh, it's actually a story I like to reflect on when dealing with others. But and I, again, I, I, I you probably don't remember that at all. But um, do you or have you ever looked to work with other coaches in the same manner in order to keep upskilling? Well, I don't remember it, Jeff. So, but I do appreciate the, the kind feedback. Um... Obviously, if you brought me a, a box of chocolates or something uh, <laughs> afterwards, then I would have remembered it. I, I, uh, I remember that evening. It was absolutely lashing rain. And I was thinking to myself, of all the nights I could have picked to come down, it would be the <laughs> one that was. Yeah, it's a bit of a wind tunnel, that, that pitch as well, when the weather's bad. So, uh, well, that shows a massive commitment from your point, And uh, I hope you got something out of it anyway. But um, apart from a cold and a wet back. But, uh, yeah, look, it's something I've always tried to... You know, being comfortable to invite coaches in, and uh, if people want to pick my brains, uh, not that takes long. Um, I'm more happy to do that. In fact, I've, I was talking to a young Irish coach yesterday who who sort of rings me uh, from time to time to keep on top of his stuff and bounce stuff off me. And there's a number of coaches that that do that with me now, and I'm delighted to to try and help in some way. As I said, I was never the best coach and never the worst coach, but uh, I've learned a lot of things along the way, a lot of harsh lessons. And I just wish I had someone to to do that with on my way through, Jeff. I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I've made a lot of uh, errors. I've had dips in my um, sort of mental health and mental sort of uh, confidence over time. I've had up times where I've been, you know, up, right up there thinking I'm on top of everything and doing the best I can. There's times when, like I said, I've, my mental health has sort of, um, you know, been on the floor, you lose three or four games and you doubt yourself and you think, oh, you know, like reflective practice is great in one way because you reflect and think, oh, you can do things better. But you can also beat yourself up and reflect and think, oh, my God, you know, am I good enough? Can I do this? Can I get out of this trough? And you doubt yourself uh, enormously. So, you know, I've been able to pick the phone up and 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 talk to someone and um, and and sort of uh, pick the brains of someone that's been around the block would have been fantastic for me. And it's probably one of the things I look back on and I I wish I I I'd reached out more. And I think it was probably a weakness of mine that uh, I perceived myself that you know I shouldn't have to do that. And uh, again, looking back, it'd be one of the things I would have changed. 
rugby and sport can be quite a fickle place and you know better than most now in fairness but even after a win people are always quick to tell a coach what they could do better or after a loss you know you're the worst person in the world and even in my own experience like I've had people come up to me and complain that a team got a losing bonus point rather than you know saying (laughs) well done and winning a tight game you know when it comes to your own mental health how did you deal with the pressure of everything there? I, I tell you what, I, I you know I was uh, I grew up in a coal mine town up in the valleys uh, in Wales. You know I watched my childhood heroes, which were my local teams, play, and they were full of tough guys, coal miners, steel workers, and they battered each other. There was no touch judges to come in with flags. There was no yellow cards in those days. It was tribal warfare. It was unbelievably uh, <laughs> physical stuff. Uh, I'm glad that. You know, it's got the the game has got cleaned up. Um, you know, uh, I grew up with no central heating, outside toilet, you know, all the usual stuff uh, back in those days, Jeff, in a coal mining town. So no one ever really talked about mental health. No one ever really, you know, was encouraged, if you like, to uh, to sort of drop the guard in that respect. And I probably came through life uh, probably thinking, well, you know, my peer group, my the guys I looked up to, you know, they were such tough guys. I got to tough it out, tough it out, tough it out. And when I've had dips, um, I look back and think, you know, I really should have told people I was having dips. I really should have told people I was struggling. And you sort of learn to put the brave face on it. You come out and you say, come on, guys, then here we go. These are the solutions. Off you go. But then you get back, you know, to to the to the house if you lose again on a Saturday and you go into some dark places. Sunday can be a very tough day. Um, going through the video analysis and you know I sort of learned over time to cope with that and and be um, a little bit more easygoing in my coaching but uh, you know to have a, a mentor that I could have spoken to 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 have um, you know I think there's there's been a lot of people who've come out and spoken about mental health and dealing with sort of uh, the, the moments when they've felt down and dealing with some anxiety I think that uh, you know huge respect for those guys so certainly I wasn't brave enough to do it when I was going through some bad times. And I, I would encourage everyone to, to go out and, and, and start to talk about that because I think that's, you know, that's that's the best thing you can do when you're having those tough days. So coaches, I think, you know, again, we underestimate our um, our brotherhood, really. <laughs> because we're all uh, so competitive against each other, um, it's very difficult sometimes to pick up a phone to another coach and say, hey, listen, I know we did, uh, we battle against each other twice or three times a year, but hey, listen, I'm struggling a little bit with a couple of technical things. I'd really like to talk about those to you. Or I might be having a bit of a tough time with my, uh, you know, my sort of, um, my mood. You know, uh, have you been through anything similar? Any any sort of uh, things that you've sort of done to work on that? I think just by reaching out a little bit more than I ever did, I think it could have been a better place. But I have to say, Jeff, it's, it's a really tough gig, mate. And uh, I was reading someone talking about it the other day, saying that rugby coaching or, Football management, the toughest jobs in the world. And I I never thought that because I always thought it was my passion. It was what I loved. Uh, it is it is a tough job. You know, you need so many skills. You need to be uh, technically good. You need to have good engagement skills. You need to be good in the media. You need to be good with people. Um, you, could, you need resilience. Um you know, you need to be able to motivate people. It's and then you need to sort of be able to 
to motivate yourself. And probably the one thing I re- neglected was my, my going to the mental gym myself. You know, uh, very often would go in the physical gym and, and lift weights or walk or run. Uh, so I probably didn't spend enough time looking at options to keep your mood up, you know. So, um, yeah, I think everyone, I'd encourage every coach to, to sort of look at strategies and look at um, buddy systems and not be afraid to talk about times when they're having a tough time, you know. Later in your career, let's say when you were coaching Lansdowne and maybe the week leading up to an AIL final or a Bateman Cup final, did you deal with the pressure differently then or was it still niggling at you for the week? Well, I think I think the pressure only really came off of me post-Wales, probably a bit of a tough time after that. Uh, there was a lot of flack flying around after that. And I started to get a little bit more anxiety after my coaching after that, you know. Um, a feeling plus more being judged. Um, but up until then, I was very relaxed, really, you know, I think about it. And uh, in fact, the day we played Ireland uh, to to try and win the Grand Slam in 2005, um, my wife came to uh, to see me before the game. So it was a couple of hours before the team meeting. I go, I go and address the, the, the team and the meet, team meeting before we got on the bus for the game. So she came to see me. And she couldn't get over. I was playing a, a tune on my guitar, talking to my press guy in my sort of hotel room, talking about the what it always to put a press uh, uh, A4 guidance notes on the on the sheet on the in the, where the in the dressing room for the players. So basically, when they came in off the off the game, if they had to be interviewed, it was a quick summary of three or four points. What if we win the day? Hey, it was all about the effort. It was all about the team. It was all great for the nation. Yeah. And what if we lose? It was things that we've ident- we'll identify what we need to get better at. It's a learning experience. We, you know, we've got to take take this on the chin. And you know, we're sorry if we upset, the, you know, let the fans down. But we'll be looking to get back on winning winning track next week. Whatever it was, that we we discussed that were important points. So I was going through that with my uh, my press officer, but I was picking away on my guitar and strumming away. And my wife came in and said, "I thought you'd be up the walls," you know. Um, I was just so relaxed. I, I think there was confidence, really, that that team was on such a, a high, it was such momentum in their performances, I couldn't see how they would lose. So, probably a little bit too cocky, Jeff, to be honest with you. But um, I think I've had a mixture over the years of being, you know, going from one extreme of being too relaxed to, uh, in later years, perhaps being a little bit more anxious about uh, performances and getting the result, you know? Did you find it tough to transition from having all the information about your opposition to suddenly just having tidbits or maybe the odd game that you would have seen here and there yourself? Yeah, and look, you know, again, I I, um, I have to tell you that uh, that was a massive learning curve for me, the whole sort of transition from amateur days where we never did really any video analysis. In fact, I, I will say that when I coached Swansea, I send I would send a scout group off to watch the team the week before we played them. So that was quite cutting edge, and they produce a, a you know a one or two page report for me on some of the key principles in the opposition game, which I would distribute to the players and read out a couple of key points before we train. So I guess we did that principle even on a restricted basis, um, you know, thirty years ago. Uh, so. But, you know, then you get into the adage of paralysis by analysis. It's it's learning how much you give and how much you don't give. And and it's also about your group. It's quite situational. So, for example, at the international level, I think there was a lot of pressure to 
you know, do so much homework and, and know the opposition so much and work through every aspect of the opposition. And, you know, and that, that sort of makes sense. You, you're dealing with the best players and, and, and those little things can make such a difference. Whereas when I was in Lansdowne, if I started to present too much stuff on the opposition, it sort of spooked my players. Uh, and, you know, if we lose a game, I'd say to the guys, you know, what went wrong with it? I say, coach, you know, we did too much talking about the opposition. We, I just got a feeling we're talking them up. And our mindset was, was different going into the game. It was like as if we were inferior. Um, so, in fact, we, we in the end in Lansdowne, we pretty much learned to uh, go through each season without looking at the opposition too much. It was all about, we decided it was all about us. If we got uh, uh, if we got our shit right, I think that was our say. And if we got our shit right, then we can we'll deal with most things they they throw at us. So uh, you know that's the sort of way we looked at that. Having said that, when we got into playoff games, uh, we took a little bit more interest in a couple of things without building them up. So I might speak to the forwards about a little bit of stats and a little bit of footage on the opposition lineup because obviously if you can take a little bit of ball off the opposition, be at source in particular, uh, you can stop a lot of their strike plays anyway. So we we spend a little bit more time around defensive lineouts and and some of the setups were specific to the opposition. But I guess I took the view that if we got our shit right, our systems were robust enough in defence uh, that we should be able to stop pretty much every play they're doing. You know, so um, it it's 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 it can be quite situational, Jeff. And I think you need to engage and talk to your players and ask them how you know what how much they want, what do they feel benefits them, and what do they think takes them over the top. Do you think it's a case then of essentially, you know, like we said earlier, just controlling the controllables? Yeah, it is. But then you might have a group then come up to you and say, "Coach, uh, we've lost four games. Um, we got we got spooked, you know, by plays we didn't expect or we didn't know uh, have any knowledge of how we defend them." Can we start doing some more video analysis? Now, in that situation, you probably uh, got a responsibility to to your group and yourself to um, to actually listen there and uh, and start to engage in that process and, and look at specific uh, solutions to to that uh, analysis uh, sort of void. You know, um, whereas in in the in the example I gave you about Lansdowne. Um, they, you know, is paralysis by analysis. They, they got spooked if I give them too much information. You know, so again, that engagement piece, Jeff, all the stuff we talked about earlier in the piece. Um, I think getting to know your players, getting feedback, being open-minded. Uh, obviously, you've got to have your own high standards, but learning to treat things depending on the situation, situational leadership. You know, uh, which you know all about. Um, and certainly, I found again uh, in the different teams I've been involved in. Um, I'd probably reflect and there's different ways I've approached each team, if you know what I mean. It's, there's slightly different ways of doing things. So um, I think that's really important. The last question I'll ask is one that I like to ask coaches of all levels. And it's what advice would you give to coaches, either starting out or amateur coaches of any level? Uh, well, I think there's two or three things that are really important. Network, network, network. So um, it's one thing I didn't do enough of, but I know, you know, in my 60s, looking back, the power of my network is what really has got me to where I am, I guess. Uh, so, for example, the same guys that are on the board in the Ospreys were, you know, heavily involved as chairman of Swansea Rugby Club. So 
they took me from that valley town I talked about with the outside toilet. They took me from there to civilization in Swansea to play rugby. Uh, and then uh, after I finished playing rugby, after my accident, and I went off and coached some lesser-known teams, uh, Swansea uh, came to me, the same guys came to me and asked me to become the coach of Swansea. Uh, I was lucky enough to win two league titles with them, win the cup. We beat Australia, with the world champions. Um, so I'd like to think I did a really good job for them. Uh, I would then got asked to coach the Leinster team, uh, which was transitioning from amateur to professional. Um, and then the same guys then when the Ospreys were um, struggling last season, uh, the same guys put, put the phone up to me and, and asked me if I'd come and help out the Ospreys. So that network, reaching out to that network, initially getting that opportunity with those guys in Swansea has led to, to me playing for Swansea, coaching Swansea, and now being based in Swansea, uh, involved with the Ospreys, uh, initially as performance director, now as development director. So network is massive. Continual personal development, CBD, is massive. Get out, keep working on your own personal development, your self-awareness piece, trying to grow yourself, because uh, you're never the finished article in this game. I'm, you know, I've been doing it for 34 years. I'm, you know, I'm still only 50% of where I wanted to be uh, after 34 years because I probably didn't put enough time into certain aspects of, of my coaching and my self-development. Things like we talked about earlier, reaching out to more coaches and mentors. I should have done more of that. And I think then the mind gym would be massive, uh, building time in for you during the week. I didn't do that. I was I said yes to everything and burnt myself out a bit, Jeff. You know, people would ask me to go speak at dinners. People would ask me to go to prizes giving. People would ask me to, again, the press would ring me at 8 o'clock in the morning before I, you know, went out to training. I was always too accessible to people and in the end you know I had a bad patch after the wheels thing where I realised I'd run out of petrol and and the tank was empty uh, so find time for you find time for the mind gym uh, work on things that would give you greater resilience um, because that way you can stay in the game uh, at a better level for longer so those would be some of the things that I think uh, would be really important to coaches uh, going forward well, Mike, not for the first time, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to chat to me about coaching and for sharing your thoughts and opinions on everything. No worries, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. It was great for me to reflect on my journey and pick the bones out of it myself, really. So uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope there's something in it for, you know, certainly the younger coaches, uh, but also, well, I think, generally in life. I think there's a lot of principles in, in coaching and the experience of coaching that, that, that are transferable. Like everyone's got such busy lives, everyone's got such enormous challenges, uh, particularly these days. Like you're finding time for yourself, finding time to step off the treadmill now and again, and building your petrol stops, your pit stops are, are really important to everyone, and, and the personal development side is really important to everyone. So I think uh, hopefully there's something in there for everyone. Well, thanks a million again anyway. Really appreciate it. That's it for me today, folks. If you'd like to hear more of the podcast, you can catch it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to follow, rate and review and check back in with next week's episode. Thanks and good luck.